This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. So today we have uh, Steve Dunn talking with us. He's a naval historian based out of England who specializes in the Royal Navy in the First World War. And he's authored a book that, uh, if I understand correctly, Steve is going to be coming out soon. And it's called Battle in the Baltic, the Royal Navy and the Fight to Save Estonia and Latvia, 1918 to 1920. So um, that's a lot to cover, two years and quite a fluid situation in the region. Some of our listeners uh, may remember that we put out a couple of episodes about the Baltics in 1919, and we had to spend probably about half the time just sorting out the various groups of white Russians and Baltic Germans and Freikorps and everybody else. Um, and the situation on the sea, I'm assuming, was from what we included in those episodes and the research that we did, was uh, also quite a dynamic one. So maybe to get us started off, Steve, uh, can you tell us a bit of like who's sending ships to the Baltic and what are they trying to achieve in this kind of chaos? Uh, certainly. Um, the, the situation, as you said, on land was extremely fluid. There were multiple competing armies. Um, the key ones, as far as we're concerned, were the Bolsheviks, who were attempting to regain their control of the uh, Baltic states. Um, the uh, Baltic Germans, who were actually the major landowners in the Baltic states, who raised their own uh, army to try and uh, defend their possessions. Um, the white Russians, who also wanted to take control of the Baltic states, but as part of a restoration of the monarchy in Russia, um, and the Baltic states themselves, who raised armies in Estonia and in Latvia. Uh, and within Latvia, um, Latvians were actually fighting each other because there were um, Bolshevik Latvians as well as Latvians who um, uh, wished to gain their independence. Um, the Allies had um, a particular interest in creating Baltic states which were free of Russian influence because they uh, saw them as a sort of cordon sanitaire. Uh, this was particularly uh, the view of the French government. Uh, the British government wanted um, uh, to ensure that Bolshevism couldn't spread. Um, and um, to that end, both the French and the Germans had um, uh, used one of the provisions of the armistice, um, Article 12, uh, which gave us our last competing army on land, which was the German army, who had been ordered to stay in place as part of the armistice and fight the Bolsheviks to try and preserve the independence of the Latvian states. Uh, the German government, or at least part of it, um, wanted, in fact, to annex the Baltic for itself as part of a, a looking east strategy and a stepping stone for what they saw as a future invasion of Germany. Um, 
So it really was an extraordinarily complicated situation. Uh, and the, the, the French wanted to protect Baltic independence to create this cordon sanitaire. The British were concerned to um, create some sort of free trading block in the Baltic, uh, which could be used as a counterweight uh, uh, to stop both German and Russian expansion. The problem was the British didn't want to pay for it, uh, and neither did the French. Um, Britain was broke. Uh, the First World War destroyed Britain, uh, a position from which it never really recovered. France also was broke. Uh, the only people who had any Ameri money were the Americans, and the Americans didn't want to send anybody to fight a war that they had very little interest in. Um, and so uh, the British government carte uh, absolutely refused to give carte blanche to Winston Churchill, who was the Minister of War, and was very much in favour of sending an army to fight the Bolsheviks, uh, and settled instead to send a light force of cruisers and destroyers. Um, these were given no specific instructions. Their orders were extremely vague. They were sort of orders that get admirals hung. Um, and they were given some arms to give to the Estonians and the Latvians to help um, arm the patriotic forces. Uh, so they sailed into this very confusing situation uh, in December of 1918 um, and found themselves providing artillery support for the Estonian forces uh, and for the Latvian forces uh, found themselves supplying arms which were then taken away from, in, in case of Latvia, the Latvian army and dumped in the sea by the German army, um, and, and achieving not very much uh, in the way of uh, influencing the conflict. Because, of course, a naval force can be strong at sea, but it's absolutely hopeless on the land, and the land was really where the action was taking place. Um, these forces were withdrawn, um, in uh, the end of December, uh, and then new forces were sent out at the beginning of the new year under a new admiral, uh, Admiral Walter Cowan, um, a man for whom the expression fire eater is probably not strong enough. Um, I was going to ask you about him. Uh, he seems like, uh, like quite the character, and uh, in writing the episode scripts, uh, there was no shortage of sort of pithy quotes from him. Now that may mean uh, he was a firebrand, or it may mean he just uh, did a good job writing his memoirs. But um, <laughs> how, how did his personality kind of have an influence on on what the what the Royal Navy was doing there? Well, again, Cowan's orders were very non-specific, um, but he was a man who could start a fight in an empty room, uh, and he was bitterly disappointed that the war was over. Uh, and so what he wanted to do was to get into a, a battle. Um, and his strategic intent, if you like, was to neutralize the Russian communist fleet, um, which was holed up at Kronstadt. Um, if that fleet had come out, and it's, there's some debate as to whether it could come out, because, of course, the Bolsheviks had killed all the officers, and um, the, the fleet was in a very poor state of maintenance and uh, was ruled effectively by a political commissar. Um, but if it came out, there are a number of battleships, there are a number of heavy cruisers. They could have done very considerable damage to Estonian and Latvian forces on the littoral of, of the Baltic. Um, and so Cowan, uh, Cowan's strategy was to try in some form or other um, to get into a fight with the Russian Navy, um, the Russian Red Navy. Uh, the Russians were very disobliging in this. 
Um, they really didn't venture out very much. And when they did, they ventured out behind minefields, um, which Cowan's light forces had to try and penetrate uh, and attack. Um, it is debatable, in my view, uh, whether the campaign could have been prosecuted to the successful conclusion it reached if another admiral had been present, because I think Cowan's appetite for the fight was considerable. Um, and there was, in fact, some fighting, I guess most famously, the raids against uh, Kronstadt, uh, where there was you know, severe damage to some capital, Soviet capital ships and um, where some Victoria Crosses were won. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about how those worked? Um, maybe the role of the aircraft carriers? Because I didn't know much about that before getting involved in, in uh, writing these episodes last year, and I thought that was quite an interesting aspect. Uh, there were two, if you like, um, innovative um, parts to Cowan's eventual attack on the Russian fleet at Kronstadt. Uh, the first was the use of, of coastal motorboats, CNGs, um, popularly known as skimmers. Um, these were tiny constructions, um, 40 feet long or 55 feet long, depending on the model, powered by aircraft engines, um, which hydroplaned along very high speeds. They could do 40 knots. Uh, they were equipped with one or two torpedoes, depending on type. Um, and they were very light craft. Uh, they had to be transported from Britain uh, on, on a cargo ship uh, initially. Um, the second tranche of, of CMB, uh, CMBs that came out was actually towed out and some of them were lost in the tow. Um, but they were, they were an innovation uh, and Cowan um, liked them very much. He wasn't the person who came up with the idea of using them there. The first CMBs that went out... Um, were part of a clandestine operation by the British Secret Intelligence Service um, who wanted to use them to get their spies and contacts out of Russia uh, and feed intelligence back to London. Uh, and they went out under a naval lieutenant called Augustus Agar. Um, he managed to borrow a torpedo um, from one of Cowan's ships. Uh, and when he stumbled across the cruiser Olen, um, which was bombarding uh, a, um, uh, a fort which had rebelled against the Reds, um, he was able to torpedo it uh, and sank it, and sank the Russian cruiser Oleg with considerable loss of life. Um, when he reported this success to Cowan, Cowan thought he'd found the weapon uh, with which he could attack uh, the fleet in Kronstadt. Can I just can, can I just uh, interject here for a moment? I, I have to say, just as a an amateur enthusiast, in addition to a professional historian, it is so British and so 1919 that you can borrow a torpedo. Yes, it's it's just <laughs> it's one of those unique kind of situations. It seems where you're like, hey, we work together. Could you lend me your torpedo? I want to see if I can sink a cruiser with it. It's... <laughs> and it was pretty much it was like that. Um, uh, um, Agar was not supposed to carry armament, and indeed he was not supposed um, to attack anything. Um, but uh, he managed to persuade Cowan to, to give him this torpedo, and um, off he went. Um, now, now um, Agar for this action won the VC, and it was a very brave action. He, he Thank using his tiny little boat, uh, a very large capital uh, Russian warship, 
Um, but it gave, as I said, it gave Cowan the idea that here was his weapon. And so with Agar, they planned bringing some more out and, and staging a larger attack. At the same time, Cowan became aware of the fact that the Russians had airplanes and he didn't. Um, and became aware that uh, airplanes may well be a useful tool for attacking Kronstadt. And so he was sent the um, aircraft carrier HMS Vindictive. Now, HMS Vindictive was actually not designed as an aircraft carrier. She was designed as a heavy cruiser of the Hawkins class. Mm -hmm. um, and she still had some of her gun turrets. Um, but, um, but she also had a flight deck. Uh, and she came out um, with a, a collection of fairly antique, even by the standards of 1919, um, airplanes, um, which gave um, Cowan a striking force uh, of planes, um, which he used to bomb Kronstadt and to chase away Russian intelligence gathering airplanes. Um, the airplanes and CMDs then staged an attack on Kronstadt uh, at night uh, in which a further two Victoria Crosses were won, um, and in which they sank uh, two Russian battleships and one Russian um, depot ship, a converted cruiser. Um, so is again, this, is this then, kind of, could we say, because naval and air stuff is not, my, uh, is not my specialty, so maybe something is escaping me, but is it more or less fair to say that this may have been the first airborne attack on a, on a fleet in harbor? the kind of 4-4-4-4 shadowing of uh, Taranto and Pearl Harbor later on, or is that a stretch? Um, I think it's probably a stretch because the planes played very little role in the actual attack other than um, they'd gone in um, beforehand to machine gun up the, the docks a bit and distract attention. And they didn't actually attack any, they didn't actually attack any of the ships themselves. But I think you make a valid point. Um, you know, the, the First World War is not distinguished by combined arms operations. Um, and I, I'm struggling to think of an, uh, an example other than possibly the Zeebugger raid um, when aeroplanes went in um, at the same time as ships went in. Uh, I mean, one of the CMBs was actually rescued by an aeroplane because um, Lieutenant Napier's boat was in trouble and had been fixed by a spotlight um, when he was trying to escape uh, away from Constance. From starting fixed by a, a spotlight um, with a, from a fort that had a weaponry trained on him, uh, and one of the aeroplanes shot up the searchlight, uh, and that allowed Napier to escape. Um, so yes, you, you, that's an interesting point. Not actually one I tease out in the book. I now wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> well, now there's a sequel in the works. You see, we can we can co-author. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> How about some of the less, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, less sexy part of uh, the combat situation or the, the naval situation, namely the mines? Because uh, in our episode, we used a couple of, there were a few uh, prominent references to the, to the mines in the memoirs of Cowan, for example, and a couple of other accounts that we used. But yep. usually... As a, as a non-naval specialist, mines are kind of, yeah, yeah, there were mines and they were a problem, but let's get to when ships are shooting at each other or when there's aircraft <laughs> and aircraft carriers because those things are a lot cooler uh, and a lot more dynamic. 
But um, if I recall correctly, there was very poor information about the location of the minefields, given that the Russians had laid many of them, and then that information uh, seems to have been lost in the revolution. So how does that have an impact on the operations, and how high up on the priority list would mines have been at the time versus how not so exciting they might appear in the historiography? Um, mines were very important, uh, and they do feature uh, quite a lot in the book. Uh, the, the, the problems that they caused and the um, problems encountered in sweeping them. Um, you're quite right, there were Russian mines, there were also German mines, and there were Danish mines and Swedish mines as well at the entrance of the Kattegat. Um, and nobody really knew where any of them were. Uh, the Germans had provided some information post-armistice as to what might be a safe route. Um, but in fact, um, uh, it wasn't. And um, the very first um, sally that the British made into the Baltic in December 1918, they lost a ship to mining. Um, so a number of warships were mined during the campaign. Uh, L-55 as a submarine was mined. Um, the destroyers Barulum and Victoria, well, Barulum was mined. Um, uh, the minesweeping sloops, Gentian and Myrtle, they were mined. Um, there was a store carrier mined. Uh, and there were two light cruisers mined. Um, uh, Kurokawa, which was mined and solved, and Cassandra, which was mined and sunk. Um, so mines were a real problem. Um, and in fact, some 61 destroyers, minesweepers, light cruisers, etc., were damaged in some way or other during the campaign, largely by mines or by running aground, because the Baltic shoals a lot. And again, there were no um, no decent charts, and many of the shoal indicating buoys had been removed. So if you weren't hitting a mine, you were hitting a sandbank. Yeah, that sounds like a bit of a nightmare uh, to try and uh, undertake sort of combat operations or support operations and have no clue where the, uh, the minefields are going to be located. Um, yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to touch on one other point as well, uh, not necessarily to do with combat of any sort, but more to do with morale, because a topic that we touched on in a lot of our episodes, generally speaking, in 1919, is uh, basically people didn't want to fight anymore. And that was a big factor in imposing uh, a lot of allied policy, especially in Central Europe and the Middle East, uh, the pressure to demobilize because the civil populations and soldiers wanted to, wanted to be demobilized. And as far as I understand, uh, that was also the case for the Royal Navy in the Baltic, and it actually led to some mutinies or near mutinies. Which, is, which seems to me to be quite a rare thing in the British service in, uh, in the First World War. So can you tell us a bit about you know, what were the conditions there, what led to the mutinies, um, and how were they then handled? The mutinies were caused by um, three things. Firstly, um, the food was terrible. Um, now, the British sailor likes his food, um, and if he's not getting potatoes and beef and um, all that sort of good stuff, uh, he gets very unhappy. Uh, and the food was terrible. 
and there was no food available uh, locally because, of course, the land that the, the Baltic states had been ravaged by all these competing armies, all of whom were living off the land. Uh, and so uh, rations were obvi- often at the starvation level. The second reason for discontent was that nobody knew why they were there. Um, the, the, the mission's objectives were not made clear to the people serving there. And indeed, many of them uh, might have been favorable to the other side. Um, uh, many sailors were, uh, as were many workers in Britain, um, toying with um, interesting concepts like communism and, um, uh, and policies of the left. Uh, and so there might even have been support um, for um, the Reds had the, the sailors really known why they were there. Um, and thirdly, um, the Baltic is, was a very, very difficult place to serve. You, you've alluded yourself to the problem of mines and, uh, and the, the, the navigational hazards. On land, you never really knew who your friend was or your enemy, uh, and there was no succor to be gained on land. Uh, the ships were not equipped for Arctic conditions. Uh, it gets very, very cold up in the Baltic, uh, and, and uh, the ships had no special clothing or no special um, uh, heating apparatus. Um, and, and everybody just wanted to go home. Uh, the war was over. You know, there'd been an immense slaughter. People wanted to go back and get on with their lives, get on with their jobs, uh, get on with their family life. Uh, and here they were fighting a war. And importantly, for the, the Navy people fighting the war were not volunteers. Um, they were people who thought they were about to be demobbed and were then told, no, you're staying on the ship, we're going off somewhere else. Um, and indeed, some of the minesweeping folk had only signed on to uh, the mine clearance force, uh, which was a, a general force. It wasn't just in the Baltic. It was for clearing mines in the North Sea and everywhere else post-war. Um, they'd only signed on on the basis that they would be released in November, uh, and they weren't released in November 1919. They were continuing to serve. Um, so there was a, a, a whole cauldron of issues boiling up, which led to mutiny on various ships in the Baltic, including Cowan's flagship. Um, oh, wow. And also led to, uh, uh, which Cowan handled very badly, because, of course, he wasn't the person to show emotional intelligence. He just wanted to go and attack someone. Um, and also uh, in Britain at the um, destroyer's uh, naval base in Scotland, where uh, crews refused to sail um, to the Baltic, and some crews um, absented themselves from the base, caught a train to London, uh, and uh, were intent on marching on the Admiralty and demanding that this whole thing be ended. Um, They arrived um, at um, King's Cross Station, uh, they arrived in London at one of the stations anyway, and um, were probably arrested by one inspector. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, uh, you know, that's the, that's the kind of thing um, that I really like about uh, the period that uh, we're dealing with now, is these kinds of things don't, you know, fit nicely in the more common public perception of the First World War period, right? The, it, that, you know, there's a lot going on in people's minds at the time, and it's not it's not uh, monolithic. And for sure, when you're put under the stressors um, that the Royal Navy rank and file were in this Baltic campaign, then you certainly start to see 
uh, cracks in any kind of, uh, let's say, harmonious hindsight uh, that, that some people still uh, kind of think of when they think back to the, the First World War. Yeah. So, thank you very much, Steve, for uh, sharing with us uh, all these details, all these insights, and I'm sure that the book is uh, jam-packed with others of a similar ilk. So before we go for today, um, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get their hands on the book if they want to? Well, the Battle in the Baltic is published by Seaforth Publishing. It comes out on January the 30th, and it could be obtained from Amazon, from Pen and Sword, and from all good bookshops. All right. Well, now you have it, people. You know where to get your fix of... Uh, fire-eating admirals and, uh, you know, mutinous, half-socialist uh, Royal Navy sailors. So, um, so you are all set. Steve, I want to thank you very much for talking to us today, and uh, I look forward to the next book. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.